Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Things are picking up at the court these days. The justices are busy hearing cases, issuing opinions, and deciding which new cases to hear. Zach, how about grants? Any, th- any new grants this week? We do. We have two new grants this week. And the court agreed to hear Pulsifer versus United States, where the court is being asked to resolve a circuit split about when the safety valve provision of the First Step Act applies. And the court also agreed to hear CFPB versus Community Financial Services Association, where it will decide whether the CFPB's unique funding mechanism violates the Constitution's Appropriations Clause. This is a major case that could potentially mean that the CFPB, as constituted and funded, is unconstitutional. Well, that brings us to oral arguments. Of course, the cases challenging President Biden's plan to cancel about $430 billion of student loans dominated the news coverage, but I'll briefly mention the other two cases that flew under the radar. The first there was Dubin versus the United States, which will decide to what extent do you have to use someone else's identity when committing fraud to be guilty of aggravated identity theft. And the second was New York versus New Jersey, which will decide whether New Jersey has a contractual right to unilaterally leave a port security compact that the two states entered into. You know, GC, this is a really interesting case. It's kind of masquerading as a procedural case at first glance, but there are actually some really interesting issues about state sovereignty that came up during the oral arguments, and also some really interesting issues about how we should interpret text in light of certain background principles uh, that were in force at the time the text was adopted. Uh, So really interesting argument. I actually have a short piece coming out on this case, and I hope uh, everyone will check it out if they want some more information. Well, let's put a link to it in the description. Absolutely. And that brings us to the two student loan cases. Now, let me give you a quick review before delving into those arguments. Remember that Biden tried to get Congress to pass student loan cancellation, uh, but after Congress refused, remember Nancy Pelosi famously said that the president doesn't have the power, only Congress can do it. Uh, President Biden claimed that he had the power to do it unilaterally under an emergency powers law called the HEROES Act. Now, the HEROES Act was passed after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks to give military service members and first responders temporary reprieve from their loan obligations. But as is typical of congressional delegations, it used very broad language. Specifically, it allowed the Secretary of Education to waive and modify the laws governing student loans for people affected by a national emergency, but with an important limitation only so far as was necessary to prevent them from being made worse off. Now, Biden took the position that this law, plus the COVID-19 emergency, gave him the power to eliminate up to $20,000 of student loans for anyone below the top 5% of all income earners. So in other words, 95.5% of all student loan borrowers. A group of states sued, arguing principally that because they have state agencies that are paid by the federal government to service those loans, Biden's cancellation plan will reduce their income and thus reduce the revenue for state programs like scholarships that rely on that income. 
Two borrowers who were not eligible for a cancellation also sued, arguing that they have a procedural injury in that Biden's plan did not give them the chance to provide comments under the usual notice and comment process of the Administrative Procedure Act. So the court faced two questions. Number one, do any of those plaintiffs have standing to sue? That is a concrete injury that Biden's plan has caused that a court can fix. And second, does the HEROES Act actually give Biden the power that he claims? Now, standing is a somewhat thorny issue here. The Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, representing the administration, argued that the states don't have standing because their servicing agencies are not really arms of the state, at least for not for this purpose, so the state can't sue on their behalf. On that point, the liberal justices were in complete agreement with Prelogger. Of the conservative justices, only Justice Barrett had any significant questions about the state's standing. Now, the individual borrowers faced more scrutiny of their standing arguments. Uh, Their argument is more attenuated, and individuals are not entitled to what the Supreme Court has called special solicitude on the standing question, like states are. Now, the second question on the merits. Many of the conservative justices, especially the chief justice, seemed very skeptical that Biden's half a trillion dollar plan was not something better left to Congress. The justices asked a lot of questions about the meaning of the words waive and modify. That could be a broad delegation, they said, but could it really allow the president to eliminate $400 billion of federal assets? Could it really mean eliminating loans on a nationwide basis rather than just changing the terms of repayment for some people who were made financially worse off? And if waive or modify is not the clear delegation that the government claims, then isn't this a major question that should be left to Congress? Now, for what it's worth, Prelogger conceded that this was a major question, but maintained that the delegation was as clear as could be. The conservative justices were skeptical, but the liberal justices came out very strongly in defense of the program. Justice Sonia Sotomayor had a long aside about how this was all well within the Secretary of Education's expertise, and Justice Elena Kagan several times interrupted the challenger's arguments to say, but this is an emergency. So the chief and Justice Brett Kavanaugh pointed to past cases where the Biden administration had tried to stretch emergency powers, the eviction moratorium case, the OSHA vaccine mandate case, and worried that emergency powers laws seemed to be something of a blank check to presidents who couldn't get their agendas through Congress. Now, here's the moment everyone wants to know. What do you think is going to happen? Always hard to predict outcomes. But it's pretty clear that the liberals think that nobody has standing and that anyway, the plan is perfectly lawful. Uh, And I think a majority of the court uh, seems to think at least that this is not lawful, but uh, standing will be a tricky hurdle. Hmm. Interesting. GC, I've seen a lot of articles and commentators over the past few days praising Elizabeth Prelogger's performance before the court, saying that she essentially snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. What do you think about that? Well, no dispute that uh, Prelogger is a top-notch oral advocate. Uh, One of the things you'll notice listening to her argue is just how natural the conversation is. Uh, But I don't think – I think it's dangerous to let someone's performance on a superficial level suggest victory on the merits. I don't think that she assuaged the conservative justice's fears about uh, the overreach here. I don't know that she did a particularly good job answering some of the thorny questions about wave and modify. Uh, So definitely uh, aesthetically an excellent performance, uh, but whether she pushed her case over the line substantively, um, well, we'll see. The other question I have, GC, if the states don't have standing here, would anyone have standing? 
Uh, yes, the government has conceded that uh, if the loan servicing agencies sued themselves, they would have standing. Uh, but it uh, ultimately won't probably matter unless they sue now and tee up another case because uh, Biden has put this plan in motion for a year and a half. And the moment that the Supreme Court were to say nobody has standing, uh, the next day it will be a fait accompli. Mm, very interesting. Well, the court also issued opinion this week in two cases, with one being Justice Kentanji Brown Jackson's first opinion as a sitting Supreme Court justice. That was Delaware versus Pennsylvania. Now, this is an interesting case. It's a case where the states invoke the court's original jurisdiction to settle a dispute about whether certain financial instruments sold by banks on behalf of MoneyGram are sufficiently similar to money orders so that they're governed by the Federal Disposition Act, the FDA, and not the common law when determining which state has a right to a sheet or essentially claim those instruments. Now, that's quite a mouthful, but essentially what's happening here is if an instrument is governed by the FDA and no one cashes that instrument, typically the state where the instrument was purchased gets to take that money. If the FDA doesn't govern, typically the state where the entity that issued the financial instrument gets to keep that money, which, surprise, surprise, is often Delaware. Unfortunately for Delaware, a unanimous court found that these instruments issued on behalf of MoneyGram were sufficiently similar to money orders so that they fell within the FDA's ambit. As I mentioned earlier, this was Justice Kentanji Brown Jackson's first opinion. As we've previously mentioned, a justice's first opinion is typically unanimous, and this one was unanimous, but only in result. Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett did not join the part of Jackson's opinion where she discussed the FDA's legislative history. The court also decided Bittner versus United States with a very interesting split among the justices. Now, this case involved the Bank Secrecy Act's requirement that citizens with foreign bank accounts file a form each year disclosing those foreign bank accounts. If a citizen non-willfully fails to file this annual report, there's a penalty. The maximum is $10,000. And so the question the justices were confronting here is whether that $10,000 penalty should apply on a per-report basis or whether it should apply on a per-account basis. So in this case, uh, the petitioner, Bittner, had failed to file five reports. And so if this penalty applied on a per-report basis, the maximum penalty would be $50,000. However, he had a total of 272 foreign bank accounts. So if the penalty applied on a per-account basis, the total penalty would have been approximately $2.72 million. <laughs> a little bit of a difference there. Uh, fortunately... Uh, for Mr. Bittner, in a 5-4 to four opinion by Justice Gorsuch, which was joined by Justice Jackson in full, and by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito and Kavanaugh in part, the court reversed and remanded the case to the Fifth Circuit, holding that the Bank Secrecy Act's maximum penalty for failure to file a report accrues on a per-report basis, not on a per-account basis. Justice Barrett, joined by Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, and Kagan, dissented, arguing that the text of the statute supports the government's per-account view because the reporting requirement attaches to each individual account. Well, what I take away from this is that I, too, would like to have 270-some-odd foreign bank accounts. 
GC, uh, the FBI would like to have a discussion with you. <laughs> well, there won't be any. There won't be much in either any of them. <laughs> well, that takes us to our interview for this week. Right after this. Are you looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about? The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash heritage foundation and youtube.com slash daily signal. Today, we're joined by Professor Chad Squiteri of the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University of America. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks, GC. I'm a fan of the podcast, so I'm thrilled to be here with you today. So you are in your first year of teaching, uh, coming out of private practice. How do you find it? Uh, That's right. It's my first year. Uh, It's been fantastic. Uh, One of the uh, major benefits of being a a law professor is interaction with students. And so I'm teaching property and administrative law this uh, year. So I've had a great group of students uh, to start off that uh, my first year with. So I'm just really fortunate. What made you decide to become a professor? I'm uh, somewhat odd in that I actually went to law school with the intention of becoming a professor. So I think my interest in law probably originated um, with my father. My father's a retired police officer. So Mm -hmm. I always kind of grew up with uh, respect and admiration for the law. And then perhaps probably like uh, many of your listeners, uh, as I grew a little older, I uh, really uh, developed an interest in uh, the founding of our country and the historical context and the legal arguments that went into shaping what our country looks like today. So mm-hmm. I wanted a career that uh, would allow me to, to grapple with the history and legal arguments. And you know, being a law professor is a, is a great match for that. So now, as a professor, you have specialized predominantly in admin law, am I right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. And what got you into that? So I'm mostly interested in uh, the Constitution's structural protections. Mm -hmm. So uh, particularly today, uh, most of the arguments concerning the Constitution's structure are in uh, the administrative law space. Mm -hmm. So I kind of naturally gravitated towards administrative law, both in private practice and now uh, as a law professor. Okay. Well, admin law is a hot topic right now, especially after the course decision last term, West Virginia versus EPA, where we got the major questions doctrine. can you, in order to set up our discussion of your work on major questions, can you walk us through that decision and that doctrine? Sure. So the major questions doctrine uh, essentially holds that um, when an administrative agency seeks to answer a, a question of major political and uh, economic significance, then the agency is going to have to point towards you know particularly clear statutory authority from Congress granting the agency uh, to the ability to answer that question. Uh, So the court in West Virginia, that was the first time that a majority of the court uh, invoked the major questions doctrine by name. Um, But of course, the court has uh, been developing that doctrine over the last several decades, even if it didn't use that uh, particular name. Okay. Now, some um, uh, critics of the administrative state have uh, reacted favorably to the major questions doctrine. You have not, though. Can you tell us what your criticism of it is? Yeah. So I am a a textualist and an originalist. So I think it's fair to say that I have um, my my bones to pick with many aspects of the uh, modern administrative state. 
and I am sensitive to uh, what the major questions doctrine is seeking to accomplish. Uh, from my perspective, it's th- it's seeking to require Congress to fulfill its constitutional role, right, to, to be deciding federal policy, not just kicking uh, the can, so to speak, over to agencies. Um, but my problem with the major questions doctrine is I don't think that the doctrine is itself consistent with textualism. So I think it's um, important as a textualist to look at things at a bit broader of a level and only use those uh, tools in the judicial toolbox that are consistent with the methodology. So you wrote an essay in Law and Liberty. You called it Major Problems with Major Questions. Uh, and for listeners, I'll link to that in the description. And uh, you explain why you think the major questions is not textualist. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So in that uh, essay, I start off by you know tracing the, the origins of the major questions doctrine to a law review article uh, that Justice Breyer authored when he was actually still a judge on the First Circuit. And Justice Breyer um, is a legal pragmatist, so mm-hmm. of course not a textualist. So the major question doctrine, I argue, you know, makes sense in a world of legal pragmatism, uh, but not in textualism. And I lay out you know, at least three reasons why that might be so. So the first is that the majority in West Virginia um, explicitly said that you know, the major questions doctrine is um, – Defended on a, a practical understanding of legislative intent, and the court points to legislative history in making that point. And as a textualist, that's kind of interesting because you know uh, textualists, first of all, believe that there is no such thing as a single uh, legislative intent. Mm-hmm. The 535 legislators and the president and the lawmaking process all have their own intent. Uh, but even if there could be a single intent. Um, identifying it wouldn't have been dis- dispositive because textualists look to use uh, the term of uh, then-Professor Barrett. Uh, they interpret laws as con- congressional outsiders, as the objective reader would look at the law, not trying to get into the head of, of Congress. So mm-hmm. that focus on legislative intent I think is problematic. A-, a second reason is the Congressional Review Act. That's a statute by Congress uh, in which Congress said you know, major rules uh, essentially shall be given legal effect unless we, Congress, pass a new law saying otherwise. Uh, and, the stat- and the statutory definition of major rules is very similar to what the court has been using to describe uh, major questions. Indeed, when, when uh, then-Judge Kavanaugh was on the D.C. Circuit, he wrote an influential major questions opinion, and he referred to it as a major rules question. So my point here is that uh, the major questions auction seems to be this judge-made rule that turns what co- Congress chosen procedure on its head. Instead of a major rule being enforced unless Congress says otherwise, the court is saying a major rule will not be enforced unless Congress uh, says mm-hmm. otherwise. And then uh, the third reason is what I might refer to as like the Article One, Section Seven uh, problem. And uh, with that, you know, the, the, the framers established a, a particular method of making law, Article One, Section 7. It requires House and Senate and the president. Nowhere in that uh, role is, uh, is there room for the federal judiciary to be making, you know, political calculations uh, and asking for, you know, different, different wording of a statute due to a political uh, calculation. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the three reasons that I lay out in that essay as to, um, I suppose, my, my, uh, my objection to the doctrine. Okay. So – but you know now uh, a majority of the court I think is self-described textualists and originalists. Justice Gorsuch is probably the most strident of them all, uh, and he writes a concurrence in West Virginia versus EPA, um, 
Now, is uh, he abandoning textualism? What, if you can be fair to him, what would yeah. you say is the best textualist defense of major questions? Yeah, so I certainly don't think he's abandoning textualism. And I think, you know, may, perhaps this is a benefit of being a law professor rather than a judge <laughs> who ask, actually has to decide these cases. You can kind of relax and look at things a bit more broadly. Um, if I uh, had to defend the major question doctrine on textualist grounds, I think I would make two arguments. I would say um, – one, the objective reader, which is a perspective textualists use, uh, the, object, the objective reader expects for Congress to decide major questions itself and not delegate that. Um, and second, I might say, well, and there hasn't really been a lot of historical evidence of the major questions doctrine over time, but that's only because the administrative state, uh, at least in its current state, is relatively new, right? Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't expect to see uh, the doctrine over time. My response to that. Oh, would be would be twofold. Um, one, I don't think it's correct that the objective reader expects Congress to answer major questions itself. I think anyone uh, with a you know a passing um, understanding of the modern administrative state might recognize that Congress is quite eager uh, to delegate vast authority to administrative agencies, and that that itself is a problem. And then two, whether the court could kind of create new substantive canons, uh, which the major questions doctrine is. Um, there I would say, okay, well, does the Article Three judicial power give courts that authority? And the best work I've seen on this is actually, again, by then-Professor Amy Barrett when she was at Notre Dame. She established, um, um, for what I re can recall, you know, two, a two-factor test. One is you know, whether a canon promotes a, a reasonably specific constitutional uh, principle and then whether the canon actually promotes that principle. So for the major questions doctrine, I would think the relevant principle is the Article One. Section 7 lawmaking principle, but I think the major question doctrine falls short of promoting it because I think it um, uh, inappropriately inserts the court into that lawmaking process. Just to, to give an example, you know, the founders had uh, debated whether uh, something called the Council of Revision, which would have put uh, the Chief Justice, I believe, um, had this opportunity to weigh in on legislation uh, be before it was enacted. Um, I think that's the founders rejected that. It created Article One, Section Seven, which only has a role for President and, and Congress, not the courts. The courts um, only exercise legal judgment after a, a law has been made. But the major question doctrine kind of permits courts to make a, an explicit political calculation and then almost veto the bill for a political calculation, uh, which is very different than what courts do in judicial review, where they are withholding a legal effect due to a legal um, mm -hmm. conclusion. Okay. So when we hear about major questions, we also often hear a lot about something called the non-delegation doctrine. Can you give us a brief overview of that uh, and tell us where you think that stands as a jurisprudential matter? Yeah. So whereas the major questions doctrine speaks to whether Congress has delegated authority, the non-delegation doctrine speaks to whether Congress can delegate particular authority. Essentially holds that Congress cannot delegate its authority to other entities, and usually we're talking about administrative uh, agencies. Um, currently, the non-delegation doctrine is enforced by this test called the Intelligible Principle Test, which holds that if Congress is to delegate the authority uh, discretion to exercise one of its powers, Congress must cabin that discretion with an Intelligible Principle Test. Uh, as it turns out, the Intelligible Principle Test has been not very intelligible itself. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, has only invoked the test to hold delegations unconstitutional uh, twice, uh, last time in 1935. But nonetheless, I think, you know, I still count, you know, at least five justices at the Supreme Court, maybe six, uh, depending on Justice Barrett, that are that are prepared uh, to apply the non-delegation principle. Uh, but 
not necessarily in the intelligible principle test form, perhaps mm. using a different test. Okay. So now when I look at the Constitution and I am looking for, you know, there's there's a lot – separation of powers is embodied in it, but it is not uh, – there isn't a separation of powers clause. There isn't a non-delegation clause. So is, uh, is the non-delegation doctrine or principle better on textualist, originalist grounds and major questions? I think it is. Um, with a, one caveat, the current non-delegation doctrine speaks to legislative power, right? It says Congress can't delegate its legislative power. But uh, as I've written in an article, you know, Congress is not vested with the legislative power. It's instead mm-hmm. vested with multiple powers, plural. So, you know, sitting around just thinking what is legislative power, how it might differ from the executive or the judicial power like Montesquieu right do, right? Like that's not what we want our judges to do. We don't want them acting as philosophers, um, I propose a, a theory of non-delegation that is much more textualist in that it requires judges to look at the specific text and history of that text of the specific powers vested in Congress. So on, so on that grounds, I think the non-delegation doctrine, uh, at least the one I propose, I, non-delegation doctrines, mm-hmm. I, I should say, um, is more textual, more textualist. Uh, but I, I think I'm willing to concede that the current doctrine is perhaps not as defensible on textualist grounds. Okay. So you mentioned this article. This is uh, towards non-delegation doctrines in the Missouri Law Review? Correct. Uh, walk us through that. Give us an example how this works, how it's textualist. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's uh, helpful to start with the vesting clauses. So Article 2 vests uh, in the president uh, the executive power, singular, right? Mm-hmm. Article 3 vested the judicial power, singular. If you look at Article 1, something kind of special is going on. That vesting clause refers to all legislative powers, plural, here and granted. So starting from that premise, I started looking at the Constitution and say, okay, well, Congress is vested with multiple powers, not just in Article 1 and the amendments elsewhere in the Constitution as well. And if you look even more closely, take the familiar Article 1 powers like regulate commerce or declare war. Congress is not vested with the power to make law to regulate commerce or make law to declare war. They're vested with just uh, regulate commerce, uh, declare war. The make law authority comes from the necessary and proper clause, which gives Congress the uh, authority to make all laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution those other powers. So the necessary and proper clause is a limitation on Congress's authority to make law. Put differently, if Congress wants to make a law, it must be necessary and proper means of carrying into uh, another uh, another power into effect. So if Congress wants to make a law to delegate its authority, well, that delegation must be a necessary and proper means of carrying a particular power into effect. And the upshot here is that Congress might have, uh, due to the specific text and history of different powers, uh, might be able to delegate other powers differently. So it's not one non-delegation doctrine. It's um, the non-delegation principle applying to different powers, different doctrines. So the obvious question, what is necessary and proper? Yeah. Um, it, it, in, in my article, I, I uh, adopt Justice uh, Marshall's approach of necessary and proper. Open questions scholars have debated. Uh, I recently was asked uh, by Professor Randy Barnett actually to, to define it. And I, and I said, you know, depending on how it gets defined, that could have – um, uh, massive effect on, on, on how the the, doc, the doctrines that I propose are um, applied. Um, so, still doing additional research on okay. that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for ne- for present purposes, I apply uh, Chief Justice Marshall's uh, understanding. And remind us, where does Chief Justice Marshall's understanding come from? Um, so, his understanding, uh, at least my read, is it fall. It, you know, if it's not 
necessary as absolutely necessary. It's um, somewhere between that and um, something of convenience. So he's a, he's a little uh, hard to read on that. So could you give us an example maybe of one concrete power of Congress is how, how your framework would sort of think about how uh, the non-delegation doctrine would work in that yeah, case? Yeah. So one um, helpful example, I think, we can look at um, some powers that are vested by Article 1, Section 8, Clause uh, 3, I believe. So within that single clause, Congress is vested with multiple powers, including the power to coin money and the power to regulate the value of that money. So in the 1792 Coinage Act, we see an example of Congress delegating those two powers a bit differently. So when it came to the power to coin money, uh, we don't see Congress saying, okay, here's exactly how hot to make the flame and how hard, how long to put the copper over the flame and how hard to press the copper, right? We essentially say Congress delegating that power, that small power broadly, telling director of the U.S. Mint, you know, go hire people and make coins. Now, in that same piece of legislation, when it came to the power to regulate the value of that money, uh, we see Congress uh, legislating with a lot more uh, specifics. They say that, you know, there'll be um, eagles and half eagles and and cents and half cents, and here's all the various precious metals that must be within all those coins. And here's the value of those coins uh, pegged to the Spanish dollar. So I like that example because it shows, you know, two powers from the same clause of the Constitution being delegated a bit differently in a single piece of legislation uh, and it's a fairly early piece of legislation, 1792. Uh, so I, I like that example because it goes to show you know, how specific of the doctrines that, that I'm calling for. So uh, the court has not gone the non-delegation route, at least not yet. We have major questions. So is the fact that the court has created or employed major questions a problem for your approach being put into practice? I think so in that the major questions doctrine is, at least in my understanding, is a statutory doctrine. So I worry that, say we flash forward uh, 10 years and you know, perhaps the justices have come around and, and, and agree with me. Um, it, it, and over that time, we haven't been developing the non-delegation uh, principle. Um, I worry because they've been relying on the major questions auction. So I worry that with each major questions auction case, it's one less opportunity to develop the non-delegation principle in different, uh, different aspects. Because again, my theory is that we need to uh, use relying on the adversarial system, different parties bringing historical evidence to court. We can slowly crystallize different non-delegation doctrines for each power. So each case that we're not getting down to that nitty-gritty and we're instead just ruling on major questions auction, I think um, is perhaps um, you know some waste, a wasted opportunity. Okay. Well, this is fascinating to dive down the rabbit hole of uh, major questions, but it is not the only thing you do. You are also very involved in Catholic universities uh, or the law schools. Uh, Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition. What is that? Yeah, so uh, we call it CIT for short because the full name is a little bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, But at CIT, we um, look at the relationship between American constitutionalism and the Catholic intellectual tradition. So I suspect many of your listeners are familiar with American constitutionalism, but perhaps some are not as familiar with uh, um, Catholic intellectual tradition. So that tradition is, is is really rich and, and deep, and includes you know thinkers such as Saint Thomas or Saint Thomas Aquinas and, and Saint Augustine, but also uh, thinkers uh, you know who didn't hear the gospel, for example, Aristotle and Cicero. Mm-hmm. So at CIT, we look at that uh, relationship, and we we do it through multiple means. We um, 
we have a, a course at, at the university. We have a guest lectures come in. We, we attend conferences, promote scholarship, and also perhaps of interest to your listeners, we have fellowship opportunities uh, both for law students and also for recent law graduates, people you know in the first five or so years of their um, of their legal career. Um, so that that's CIT essentially in a nutshell. Can you give us an idea or an example of how the Catholic intellectual tradition has informed modern understandings of constitutional law and theory? Yeah, so kind of start with the uh, premise that you know uh, thinkers within the Catholic intellectual tradition have been interpreting you know text, uh, sacred text, and, and tradition for for thousands of years. And so you kind of start with almost you know a, a sense of humility and think you know maybe that thousands of years of thought might have something to offer us a, a, in the modern age. Um, and, and in particular, I think for originalists who look at uh, uh, both text and history, I think the Catholic intellectual traditions focus on um, text and tradition uh, can be a, a insightful. Uh, there, there's certainly differences between those two, right? They're not direct overlap, but I think there there is some overlap that's useful. Just to provide one example, uh, John Henry Newman uh, has writing about um, the development of doctrine over time, and he, and he proposed you know seven principles to distinguish a faithful development of doctrine, you think like a faithful development of tradition, and things that break from that tradition, uh, which he calls corruptions. Now, he was specifically writing uh, in a theological context, talking about the development of Catholic doctrine, uh, but he was explicit in saying that those principles could apply in other contexts as well. So I think you know something like that is something that can carry over to our you know more civil law um, um, interpretations and, and can draw upon the lessons of the mm-hmm. of the Catholic intellectual tradition. So uh, do you have any upcoming events at CIT, and uh, where can people sort of stay on top of what you're doing? Yeah, so uh, you can check out our website at cit.catholic.edu, and we have an event page there which has the upcoming events um, coming up and also has recordings of the past events. Uh, so perhaps if you're listeners or you know having uh, trouble falling asleep or something like that, <laughs> you can go check out my non-delegation lecture. That might be able to help. Well, Professor, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Are you ready for trivia this week? You bet. Now, before the justices were confronting major questions, minor questions, and all the questions in between, many of them had interesting jobs outside of the legal field. So I thought today we could talk about which justices held what jobs. Okay. First up. 14 justices have also served as members of the United States Senate. Who was the last justice who had previously served as a U.S. senator? Interesting. I didn't know that it was so many. I know that the last one was Hugo Black. Mm. Um, He was a senator in Alabama until FDR appointed him to the court. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, In fact, he was a senator from Alabama from 1927 to 1937, when, as you mentioned, FDR appointed him to the Supreme Court, where he served until 1971. Now, you may recall from an earlier episode where we talked about the length of service of certain justices, Hugo Black currently ranks as the fifth longest-serving justice in the history of the court, having served for 34 years and 29 days. It's a pretty good run. Now, I have a bonus question for you, GC, and I'll be a little surprised if you get this one because it is difficult Uh, But I was fascinated by this story when I found it out. That sounds like a challenge, Zach. All right. Let's see how you do. Now, out of the 14 justices who also served in the U.S. Senate, only one served after his time on the court ended. Who was it? 
Oh, I talked to talked too big a game. <laughs> I, have, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> no, look, it's a difficult question. Uh, but his name is David Davis. And his service on the court and in the Senate, it's a fascinating story. And frankly, he had a fascinating life. He served as Abraham Lincoln's campaign manager at the 1860 Republican Convention. He served as an associate justice on the court where he authored the majority opinion in Ex Parte Milligan, which is the famous case that essentially says military courts cannot be used to try civilians when civilian courts are available and operational. And he served as a member of the 1876 Electoral Commission, which was charged with resolving the disputed presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. This is where the story gets interesting, GC. The Democratic Illinois legislature elected him to serve in the U.S. Senate, this was pre-17th Amendment, presumably to influence his vote on the commission. But Davis, he called their bluff. He promptly resigned from the Supreme Court and from the commission to take Hmm. his Senate seat. That meant a Republican-leaning member took his spot on the commission and helped secure victory for the Republican candidate, uh, Hayes. Now, Davis... You know, his interesting life uh, kept going (laughs) once he was in the Senate uh, because he also served as president pro tempore of the Senate during part of his time there. This is important because when Vice President Chester Arthur became president after James A. Garfield's assassination, Davis was next in line for the presidency under the then existing Presidential Succession Act. Wow, really interesting. You don't hear a lot about former justices having uh, quite such robust careers after they leave the bench. No, absolutely not. And again, that was Justice David Davis. I encourage everyone to uh, to give his biography a look. It's a fascinating story. All right, GC, uh, ready for the next one? Hit me. All right. Only one justice has previously served as Speaker of the House. Again, this is a tough one, but uh, any idea who it is? Oh, no, I don't. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, since it's a tough one, I'll soften it a little bit. Uh, His name was Philip Barber. He served as the 10th Speaker of the House from December 1821 to March 1823. Given that time frame, uh, any idea which president could have appointed him to the Supreme Court? Hmm, I'm going to guess late 1820s, which would mean John Quincy Adams? Oh, it was an excellent guess, GC, but it was actually Andrew Jackson. Ah. Uh, He did have a little bit of time uh, between his uh, service as Speaker and his appointment to the Supreme Court. Uh, But interestingly, uh, while he was in the House of Representatives, he represented Virginia in the famous Supreme Court case Cohen's versus Virginia. I'm sure everyone who's been through 1L recognizes (laughs) that case. Uh, It involved two brothers who were convicted of selling non-Virginia lottery tickets in Virginia. There was a dispute about whether the Supreme Court had jurisdiction to hear the case, with Barber arguing it did not. Now, he lost that point, but the Supreme Court did uphold the convictions once it had decided that it could hear the case. Uh, Again, a very interesting life. Well, I'm not doing so well today, Zach. I hope your last one's an easy one. Yeah, yeah. Th- listen, those were both tough, GC, but I, I wanted to throw you a couple of uh, couple of zingers there. Uh, <laughs> but I think this one you'll get. Uh, it's a relatively softball question, I think. But okay. which of the current justices previously kirked for a justice on the court? Oh, this one I, I definitely know. All right. Chief Justice Roberts clerked for Justice Rank- Chief Justice Rehnquist. That's right. Uh, Thomas did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kagan clerked for a Thurgood Marshall. That's right. 
Gorsuch clerked for both Justice White and Justice Kennedy, and when he was clerking for Justice Kennedy, overlapped with Justice Ka- well, later to be Justice Kavanaugh. That's right. Um, Sotomayor did not clerk. Uh, Justice Barrett clerked for Scalia, mm-hmm. and Justice Jackson clerked for Justice Breyer. Did I miss anyone? Well done, GC. Oh, you excellent. Were on the money, but uh, Justice uh, Alito, he didn't clerk for anyone either. Right, right. That's correct. Excellent, excellent. Well, well done, GC. You finished on a high note today. <laughs> and that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.